Hey friends, this is the South Bend City Church podcast, and I'm Jason, one of the pastors of South Bend City Church. And I just got home from our gathering tonight, Wednesday at the Brick, and I still feel like the good vibes from it. What a crew, um, what an amazing group of people that we have growing together and becoming a church. And there's just this energy and this openness and this excitement and this willingness. Uh, it feels like a whole crew of people who are just saying like, let's go. And it's such a treat uh, to be together. Um, I tell you that because like, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, we're every Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. at The Brick, uh, which is right by the river, right by IUSB, right by the farmer's market in South Bend. Now, what happens is uh, you can take your kids to the YMCA next door. They have been really gracious to us and have opened up their space and invited our kids to join their kids care program. So you could just park in the parking lot between the brick and the Y, drop your kids off there. You can trust that they will be safe and well cared for and like have the run of the room <laughs> and have a great time while we worship together and pray together and study the scriptures together. And then you can grab them like when we get done around 7.45 or so. And then a bunch of us uh, love to linger. We got kids running around the room afterwards, which is wonderful. We got the bar open, people hang out in there. Um, grab a drink, get to know each other, share stories, laugh, reflect on the night that we've had. Uh, it's really rich and really beautiful. And uh, it's this growing expression of what we want to be, a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. Now, this isn't um, like we haven't launched yet. I don't even know entirely what that word means, um, except to say that there's a lot of ways that we, we haven't really grown into what a church is. I mean, we are just getting started, which is why we are studying the book of Acts, which is something we started last week. Um, now, last week, uh, if you've heard the podcast, you know that a little mini tornado, this is a true story, a mini tornado came through the neighborhood about 10 seconds into the gathering and the power went out. And so, so we have no lights and no power. Now, I got to confess to you guys this, this weakness of faith that I had because I'm in the back of the room and I'm thinking crap. <laughs> Come on. It's our first regular Wednesday gathering. The power is out. A year from now, I'm going to be interviewing for a job at McDonald's, and they're going to ask me how I got to that point, and I'm going to start by telling them when the power went out, <laughs> and then it all went down from there. So for a second, that's what I thought, and then I realized it was really stupid of me, because one thing I am learning about this fantastic, interesting, unexpected group of people is that uh, we're up for anything. I mean, there is just this enthusiasm, this like, let's go, let's do this. And it's kind of infectious. And uh, even though I'm supposed to be leading this thing, I often find myself drawing energy from this community and how, how open and ready and present um, everyone is to whatever's going on. So last week we had church in the dark with no sound system, no lights. It was amazing. Uh, that's a good explanation for why I had to come back to my dining room table last week and re-record the sermon. This week, I don't have as good of an explanation, but I have to do that again. See, this week, somebody named uh, Jason forgot to hit record on the podcast computer. So here we are, and I'm going to re-preach it. But that's okay, because I'm super pumped. Because what's going on in the book of Acts and the way that it's speaking to us and opening up possibilities for us is really exciting. So uh, we're going to redo it here right now. Uh, last week it was Acts chapter 1, this week Acts chapter 2, and the ongoing conversation of what it means for us to become a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. Uh, as always, uh, let me remind you, you can stay tuned in by going to southbendcitychurch.com. You can see any events that are coming up, like our weekly schedule at The Brick. 
Uh, it's a great place to sign up for the newsletter so that you're always in the loop. And it's also, um, we'd be grateful if you want to help support us. You can go to give online and we are where we are today. And our future is very exciting because of uh, people's ongoing generosity. So um, we would just sort of humbly ask that if you're a part of this thing and if you're able, uh, jump into the giving and help us get there. All right, that being said, let's, uh, let's jump back into the book of Acts. All right. Now, last week we were in the book of Acts chapter 1, and this is the, the beginning of the church. This is 2,000 years ago. This is the very same movement, the very same spirit, the very same work that we want to be a part of today. This is the beginning of that story. And we looked at it, and, and you might remember this, but we discovered that the book of Acts is actually the second part of a literary work that begins with the book of Luke. And the book of Acts, that, that begins with, with the writer saying, in my first book, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And we reflected on that last week, and we saw this, this idea that the church is uh, precisely the ongoing work of Jesus in the world, which is really important, right? Because a collection of people who call themselves Christians, like they may spend their energy uh, condemning the world or deciding who's in or who's out or... I don't know, there's just a lot of ways that we can get distracted, and those things are all too small, and they are not a church. I don't care what you call it. A church is a group of people who are learning, you know, imperfectly and with lots of grace um, to live in the way of Jesus together and to embrace his spirit and his work in the world. So that's this huge optimistic vision of what a church is, and we, we, we stood on that last week. Now, in Acts chapter 2, I want to look at the very end of it first, because at the end of this, there is this incredible snapshot, this, this beauty that just breaks in. Just, just listen to the picture here of what's going on. This is the end of Acts chapter 2. This is the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. A quick note there, the apostles' teaching. So this means that uh, apostles, basically a word for those who were commissioned by Jesus, who were with Jesus, who knew Jesus firsthand, those who were in, a, in the best, most authoritative position to relate to people. What was Jesus like? What did he do? How did he, how did he teach? What's, what's the nature of the kingdom of God that he was inviting us into? So it says that they rallied around that teaching. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Quick note there, the temple court, the temple for the Israelites in Jerusalem, I mean, this is the center of the world. This is the center of their economic life, their religious life, their political life, the social structures that make Israel Israel. All of it is centered right there in the temple. And it, it, it opens my eyes up to say, hey, the church was right there in the middle of it in its very first days, right there in the middle of all of that. And it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And saved is a word that um, has a lot of angles on it in these texts when it's used. Uh, saved, you can think salvation, you could think union with God, you can think... Um, 
You can also think uh, healing is also another good word for this. Saved from a way of life that was diminishing them and destroying them. All of that's packed into this word. It's got a lot of layers to it. But I hear that and I think, I mean, it, it sounds beautiful. Like it, uh, it, it's, it's almost like this. It's like there's so much noise in the world right now. Like ugly noise. Do you feel that? Do you hear that? Like it's gotten so bad. I know like I'll be in my car with the radio on and with the news and they'll want to play sound bites from the last presidential debate or from the latest speech from a candidate. And it's gotten to the point where I, like I have to turn it off. It's just it's like nails on the chalkboard. Do, do you feel that way? Well, with all that going on in the background, I read this, and, and in, in a world right now that's like so tribal and so divided and so suspicious of one another and so fearful and so bent on making us afraid, in the middle of all that, this, it, it sounds, it's like beautiful music in the middle of all that noise, right? I mean, I think of like, it's like, um, it's like a symphony. It's like the first time I saw Sigur it's like, uh, I don't know if anybody's seen the new JT special on Netflix, and I'm not ashamed to say it. It's amazing. You should watch it right now at, after the sermon. Um, but no, it's, it's like it's like the first time that I heard Wynton Marcellus and the Lincoln Center jazz band playing Duke Ellington. I mean, it's just like beautiful, and it's, it's a shared beauty. It's people coming together to create this beauty. And I hear that, and I think, how did they get there? You know, Acts chapter 1, it starts with this profound promise, all of this potential the church will be and do what Christ was and did. And then and at the end of Acts chapter 2, we get this early indicator that that's actually breaking into reality. And I want to ask, like, how did they get there? What happens between that promise and this picture that we see, this beautiful music that we hear? Well, let's do a little bit of refreshing. So in Acts chapter 1, we, we get this promise from Jesus that the church will be sort of the expansion of his work in the world, that his spirit will be given to the church so they can continue that work in the world. And then, uh, then they're, they're together praying and waiting and trusting and a little uncertain because, you know, the world just came for Jesus and maybe they're coming for them. But this wind starts to blow and fire comes down. And this is a fire, like not unlike the fire that speaks from a bush and catches Moses and not unlike the fire that burns in a temple and reminds them that God is here. This is a temple that comes down and it rests on every one of them, on men and women. And they dream dreams and they speak prophecies and they diagnose and they reimagine. And everyone gathered in Jerusalem hears this and in, in words they can understand, they get glimpses of good news. Well, some of this commotion it disturbs some of the people. And so like some of them ask one of my favorite questions in all of the scripture with one of my favorite answers. They say, are these people drunk? And Peter stands up and he's like, no, no, no. It's only nine in the morning, <laughs> which... Which I just think is really funny that that's right there, you know? Are you drunk? No, it's too early for that. So let the apostle stand up and tell you what's going on. Anyway, so Peter stands up, and this is like the first gospel speech that we read in the scripture, right? I mean, this is this is uh, one of the, the leaders of the early church standing up to tell a crowd, what's the good news? What's going on? What is the church, and how can you be a part of it? And so Peter, he, he grabs this whiteboard, and he drags it out in front of them. And you can kind of picture this, right? Like he, he draws a, a cliff on one side of the whiteboard. And then there's a, a cliff on the other side. And on, on the one side, he writes uh, the word God. And on the other side, he draws some stick figures. And those are you and me. And then there's this, this chasm in the middle, this, this canyon that just can't be crossed, you know? And, okay, by now, hopefully you know I'm being facetious, right? <laughs> Have you ever seen a gospel presentation like that? Look, I'm not knocking that. I'm not like saying that's bad necessarily, but I am saying 
what we have the opportunity to do in this text is to like strip away all that stuff and like just hear it raw from the source. Like, how was the gospel presented here? What's the good news? What does Peter say? So let me pick up in Acts 2.22. Here's a little bit of a sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter stands up and he says, look, Jesus was here in our midst, right? And and all of the goodness and all the truth and all the beauty that we encountered in him, we had every reason to trust it. It was authenticated by these signs and miracles. I mean, I hear there that like this is the best thing we had ever known. I mean, he wasn't just good. He, he, was, he, he was like the essence of goodness. He wasn't just somebody who sometimes told the truth. It's like he was true. He, he wasn't just living a beautiful life. It, like we got the impression that, that beauty came from him somehow, that he was the very center of it. And he says, and, and you, you, you ran from him. You, you rejected him. You killed him. You tried to destroy him. Have you, have you ever noticed that temptation that we have, that the good, the true, and the beautiful, that we, we uh, so often find ourselves running away from it, even rejecting it, even destroying it sometimes. Isaiah, uh, a prophet from the Old Testament, he puts the same idea in poetry. He says in Isaiah 53, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have you ever noticed that pattern in your life? There are little examples of, 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 of this thing that is centered in Christ, right? There are little moments where like the good things that come, rather than being able to receive them, we reject them, we run from them. Sometimes we even try to destroy them. The, the truth that comes into our lives, sometimes we don't want to hear it. Maybe it's the truth about us or the truth about God or the truth about the world that we are living in, and we want to run from it, reject it, even try to get rid of it. Maybe it's something beautiful, but There's an ugliness within us sometimes that looks at what is objectively, deeply beautiful, that which is rooted in the beauty that all other beauty comes from. We we find this ugliness within us that somehow it feels the need to run, to reject, to destroy. Have you ever felt that? Maybe the way for you it shows up, you you find yourself again and again in the same relationship pattern. It's like, man, I this this wonderful person comes into my life. And I find a way to ruin it. Maybe it's your work. You, 
you dream of your work being about something bigger than yourself, but it keeps turning into a selfish enterprise and you can't stop it. Maybe it's a pattern of addiction or destruction or something, but you just, the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the one they come from, they, they're all sort of pushed away. Well, Peter seems to be telling that story here in the book of Acts. Now, um, this makes me think of a concept in scripture that, that gets a little unnuanced in the way that we think about it. And, and the idea is judgment. And I, I know that might be a word that like is uncomfortable or you think, ah, judgmentalism, that's the problem. A judgmental God, that's the God I don't want to hear about. Maybe that's what you think. But I think there are other ways to, uh, sorry, I, I got to sip tea because I've already been preaching a lot tonight. <laughs> sorry. Um, judgment, judgment, discipline, correction, consequence. Let, let's talk about all that for a second. See, I think the way we ordinarily think about that, especially with God, is that judgment is about an imposed consequence. And by an imposed consequence, like think of this, like say you're a parent and you find your kid with cigarettes and that's like a, you know, it's out of bounds. He should know better. In fact, he does know better. And so you impose a consequence. So he's grounded or he's got chores to do, or he loses his driving privileges for a week. So you've imposed a consequence, right? Well, that's, that's one form of judgment on that act. But what about the judgment that says, go ahead, man, smoke them, (laughs) smoke all of them. And an hour later, your kid's puking. Now, I'm, I don't know if that's good parenting. I, I'm not a parent. It's not for me to say. I don't know. But, but the latter, I mean, that would be an intrinsic conse- or consequence, right? That, that, that's intrinsic to the act that's being judged. In fact, the judgment and the act, they're almost one and the same thing. And sometimes in Scripture, when we hear about judgment, when we see judgment, it's an imposed consequence. But so often, it seems that what God is really doing is he's just allowing the intrinsic consequence to come along. He, it's like God says, go ahead, I'm going to let you be what you are. Go ahead, I'm going to go ahead and, and let you head in the direction that you want to head in. And the judgment will be where that takes you. Like The destination that you arrive at is its own judgment upon that course of action that you took. And here they are, and they, it's like they realize after the fact that the best thing they had ever known, goodness and truth and beauty, walking around in flesh, it's like they realized that what they did is they took that and they ran from it and they rejected it and they killed it and they tried to destroy it. And it's his own judgment because it's, it's like the centurion, even one of the guys who's responsible for carrying out this punishment. He's not Israelite. He's not even a part of Jesus's try but there's a moment when Jesus dies on the cross and he looks up and he says surely this man was the son of God like oh now I see what we've done I mean, that, that's, that's the starting point of this, uh, this message and it does raise a question right which is like how is that good news <laughs> I mean, if this is gospel which means good news how is this good news how does this get us from the promise of the church in Acts chapter 1 to this flourishing vision of the church living out its life at the end of Acts chapter 2. Well, there's a little more to it, and this comes from Acts chapter 2, the next sentence there, verse 24. Peter's just talked about how this man was handed over to you, even though he was accredited by God uh, to you by miracles and wonders and signs. In spite of that, you killed him. But verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In other words, do your worst. It's not enough to end this goodness, this truth, this beauty. It's not enough to end Christ. 
God comes into the world in flesh and blood, the divine among us. We've known his kindness and we've felt his healing, and yet somehow we still rejected him. And there all of that lies on a cross and then in a grave, and we see it for what it is. And we fear that we have taken God himself, rejected him, tried to destroy him, gotten rid of him, chased him away. And the good news is, no matter how intensely you brought your rejection, your destruction toward this thing, it wasn't the final word. Jesus comes out of a grave. It is enduring. And it invites you into it still. This is good news. Now, it it reads next in the passage after Peter gives his sermon that, the people are cut to the heart. And this is interesting to me. They, they, like, they own this story. They say, yeah, we are part of this rejecting. We are part of this running. We are part of this destroying. And a lot of the people Peter's talking to, I mean, these aren't the ones who literally hammered the nails, right? In fact, this is weeks after that crucifixion event. I don't know that everybody there has any reason to feel a personal responsibility for what happened unless unless this is really true of every one of us, unless it is speaking to something so deep inside of us that, that every one of us could be cut to the heart and own this, could name this, could claim this. And so what we did tonight is um, we recognized that between the promise of, of Acts chapter 1 and the flourishing potential that lived out at the end of Acts chapter 2, there, there's a moment of confrontation, of reckoning, of simply, simply recognizing that every one of us has a way of doing this, of running from, of rejecting, of even trying to destroy what God is doing in the world, of what God wants to do in us and through us. The right response to that is to confess. And so we took some time for prayers of confession. Not, not like turn to your neighbor and like tell the worst thing you did this week. But prayers of confession, shared prayers before God, and a few moments of silence and reflection. Now, um, now a few words about confession. Uh, first of all, we talked about this with Aaron Nequist a few months ago when he came to help us think about how to worship. Um, when we gather, we, we're creating something, right? Like as a church, we're creating something. And it's not just a, a program or music or whatever. We're creating a, a shared spiritual space, right? I mean, it's it's a byproduct of the ways that we sing together and the prayers that we pray and the ways that we embrace each other and the stories that we tell one another. It, it, it's all of that wrapped up. We're creating a certain kind of spiritual space. And the question we want to ask is, what's the nature of that space? How, how big is that space? What does it have room for? Like, does the spiritual space that we are creating only have room for our best days and our proudest moments? Does it only have room for the headlines that we would want to share with the world? Or are we creating something that also has room for our worst days, for our worst moments, for the things that we are not proud of, for the struggles that we are stuck within, for the baggage that we are carrying from so long ago, or for the little patterns that we just continue to live in? Like, does it have room for all of that? I don't know about everyone else, but for many of us, we know we want to create something that has room for all of that. And confession is a way that we make room for all of it. So it's a good thing. It's, it's, it's a, a life-giving thing. Also, uh, a little bit about how our minds work and, and why this is so important from that perspective. Uh, I have this uh, friend named Mike. Some of you guys know of Science Mike. We had the chance to have Mike here in town a couple of years ago and uh, to spend some time with him and to learn from him. And while he was here, Mike talked to us about uh, neuroscience and prayer and the idea that 
there are parts of our brain where the really, really negative dark stuff comes from. The things that break the world, like fear and anger and violence. And then there's other parts of our brain where better things come from, like self-control and reasoning and the capacity for empathy, all that stuff. And he says, uh, the, the, the really ugly stuff, the part of the brain that controls that, most of us sort of come into this world uh, for evolutionary reasons, sort of predisposed to live from that part of our brain, unless we go through processes of transformation that relocate power in the part of our brain where the good stuff is, right? Well, Mike brings his scientific lens to this and he points out that it's been discovered there are certain practices and, and meditations and things that help sort of relocate energy and control in our brains toward the better stuff. And one of these things, curiously, is this ancient pattern of spirituality, which is called um, Ignatian spirituality or Jesuit spirituality or the Ignatian exercises. Now, this is, um, we, it's a long story. We could get into the background on it. But one of the recurring patterns in Ignatian spirituality is something called examine. Uh, a simple way of explaining it is it's a way of inventorying your day. And you, you, you remind yourself this entire inventory, this reflection is done within the loving grace of God, the full acceptance of God, right? This is not about beating yourself up or shaming yourself or making yourself hang your head, but remembering the, the warm embrace of God, the loving presence of God, the fact that whatever we have done, it's not enough to defeat the goodness of God, right? Because Christ came out of that grave. Remembering that, then you just sort of take an inventory of your day. What, what desolated you? What are you not proud of? Where were you not trusting the grace of God? And what consoled you? What brought you joy? What did you delight in in your day? And that practice apparently is one of the things that actually leads to the kind of transformation where our brains work less from fear and anger and distrust and more from compassion and empathy and self-control. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if we're going to move from the promise of the church to this beautiful music, this beautiful picture that happens in the end of Acts chapter two, it seems to me that we've got to become the kind of people who live from that other place, not from the fear and from the anger and from the anxiety, from the, from the tribalism, but rather from self-control and empathy and love and courage. And apparently naming uh, the ways that we have owned the story of failure, of running from God, of rejection, maybe that's part of it. And some of you um, who are listening and who are part of our community, I know that the language I'm using right now, like God, God's presence, the idea of God as a reality, um, I know that's not language that has meaning for you or that's not where you are. And so you, maybe you listen to me and you think, man, that's, I don't know if I can go there with you. Well, I, I just want to call out that um, I don't think that's entirely true. I mean, I, I get that some of this Maybe not doesn't translate the way that you would hope it would or that I would hope it would. But I'll tell you this. Uh, you should pay attention to a guy named Alain de Baton. He's uh, an atheist. He's a writer. He's a brilliant, brilliant person. Uh, he's over in Europe, in the UK, I think. And he started this movement called Religion for Atheists. And it's so funny to me. <laughs> like, we got, we got, like, Christians trying to get rid of religion and atheists, like, having religion. And it's, I don't know what to do with all of that. But it's interesting. He's just observed that when you get rid of God, you sometimes you get rid of other stuff, too. And some of these practices are actually really, really humanizing and important, even if you don't hold all those beliefs. And so I, I would just say that, like, look, even if, even if the word God or, or even Jesus or even the idea of opening the scriptures doesn't seem like it carries a lot of meaning for you, I think that you could join our community in the practice of confession, simply reflecting on your day. Now, um, one more note uh, that framed our community's practice of confession this week. 
And that's, it's about the guy who's giving the speech. Cause this is, this is the thing that's like staring us in the face. It's the, it's the beauty and the paradox of the way the story plays out that the man giving the speech is Peter. Because if there's anybody who had a front row seat to what was good and true and beautiful in Jesus, if there was anybody who is in a position to see exactly what was going on, that we don't want to run from or reject or destroy this, we want to open our lives up to it. If there's anybody in a position to see that, it's Peter. And Peter runs from Jesus, runs away from him in his hour of betrayal, in his hour of suffering. He runs away. In fact, Jesus tells Peter before this happens, he says, there's going to be a moment coming up where you're going to abandon me. And Peter's like, no, nah, not a chance, man. I never would. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to abandon me three times. In fact, you're going to run away. And Peter's like, no, there's not a chance. It wouldn't happen. And Peter's bark is bigger than his bite. His, uh, his intentions don't live out. And sure enough, Jesus goes to the cross. And as he's being dragged toward that suffering death, there are people around Peter who say, hey, aren't you with that guy? And Peter's like, no, 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 that's, that's, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not one of his people. I'm not with him. And the second time he's asked, Hey, aren't you with that guy? Like, like, and this is, this is Jesus to Peter. Peter's had three years of his life with Jesus. He has had a front row seat to the goodness and the truth and the beauty emanating from Christ, discovering that like, maybe he's not just a person who's good. Maybe he is goodness. Maybe he's not just a person who tells the truth. Maybe he is true. Maybe he doesn't just live a beautiful life. Maybe he's where anything that's beautiful has ever come from. He's had a front row seat. And again and again, three times they ask him, are you with him? Are you a part of that? And Peter runs away. And this is Peter who gives the speech. How is that? Well, in one of the Gospels, after the resurrection, an angel is speaking, telling them what's going on, and Peter's not there for the moment, and the angel says, hey, go tell everyone, like, no matter the fact that you ran from this, no matter that you rejected it, no matter that you tried to destroy it, you couldn't defeat it, and Jesus is here, he endures, his life is going on, and he's inviting you back into it, and he says, tell everyone, and tell Peter, and tell Peter. Peter, like you better make sure Peter knows that even him is still, he can still be in on this, still a part of this, that the fact that he ran doesn't disqualify him, doesn't cause me to turn my back on him. Tell Peter too. I mean, I wonder what that night was like for Peter after Christ hung on the cross and he saw that suffering. I wonder what he felt like. I wonder what he thought. I mean, yeah, he had abandoned his friend. He turned his back on his teacher. I wonder if he was even tempted to think, the story would have ended differently if I wouldn't have screwed this up. Maybe I could have done something. Maybe I could have stood up, stood up for this thing. Maybe the story would have ended differently if I hadn't screwed up. This is, this is Peter's experience, I think. And so I, I'd say like, of course, there's no one better than Peter than to, for, to stand up and, and give this message. There's no one better than Peter to lead, than to, to lead people through this transformation, to say, look, there's this, all this promise all this potential for this beauty to break into the world through the church. All of this hopefulness. But the, w- the way we're going to get there is we're going to reckon with this dark, this dark tendency that we have, this brokenness that, that rears its ugly head in our lives. We're going to reckon with it together. We're going to see that when Christ came into the world, though we had every reason to embrace him, we rejected him. Peter's the right guy to lead him through it because he knows it firsthand. That's why. And then he invites them to own their part in this. And we believe that if we will 
go on the journey from promise and potential into something real, we've got to own the ways that we fall short. This is not a head-hanging process. This is not a, a shaming process. This, this is not about us beating ourselves up, right? This is about a community of grace and peace that creates space for us to simply be human and real and recognize the ways that we are struggling and falling short, to bring those forward in prayer and meditation and reflection. And in that process, to be reminded that in spite of the worst we have done, it was not enough to destroy this good and beautiful thing. And as it is resurrected, we are invited back into it. That's why we confess. We, uh, we ended with this word from, from Gandhi, which I, I saw on Twitter this week. It's uh, from an autobiography that he wrote called The Story of My Experiments with Truth. And it, there's so much going on right now that seems to give us reason to be cynical, to be fearful. Um, but I read this and I thought I, I couldn't find better words to summarize this whole story. When I despair, Gandhi writes, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it. Always. And we read from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, Paul writes, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, uh, may we hope for the promise of the church. May we trust the potential of a community of people, imperfect, but learning to live in the way of Jesus. May we believe that there will be moments of favor and many being healed, saved, led from one way of life to another, brought into reconciliation and connection with God and with our community. May we um, press forward into making sure that no one has any need as long as we have anything to say about it. And in the process, may we become the ones who confess again and again, who find the courage to say, here are the ways that I have run, I have rejected, I have tried to destroy it. Because in our confessing, we are reminded it was never enough to end this good and beautiful and true thing. And may we be reminded that we are always invited back into it. So uh, grace and peace, my friends. And I hope that we see you soon. Thank you.